Lord, you are the Holy One. We pray that you would give us eyes to see you and your glory, and a heart to feel and know that you are the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So today is Trinity Sunday, the Sunday when preachers get nervous. On no other Sunday, probably, in the church year, am I so cognizant of the fact that if I'm not careful, if I don't choose my words carefully, I might accidentally say something heretical. Uh, This is a Sunday when we're supposed to uh, think about and reflect upon the the truth of the Trinity, that God is... um, One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, fortunately for me, uh, we have already read the Athanasian Creed, which is so helpful for thinking rightly about the Trinity, what it means for the one God to subsist in three persons. So um, I'd encourage you to, you know, spend time reflecting on that, reading it over, and um, that gives you a very helpful framework for thinking and talking about the Trinity. One thing you might wonder, though, is why we have a feast day for this at all. Uh, The other feast days, the major feast days of the church year, uh, are centered around acts of salvation in Christ. So we have Advent, where we begin the church year looking for his second coming. Then we look at his incarnation, his circumcision, his... Uh, his, his manifestation to the Gentiles, his fasting and temptation, his earthly ministry, his death, Good Friday, his, his resurrection, Easter Sunday, his ascension, uh, his pouring out the Spirit upon his church, Pentecost. All of these are oriented around Christ and, and specific things that he did or will do or is doing. But this Sunday is just Trinity Sunday. It's about the Trinity. Um, Why do we have a day in the church year right now, the Sunday after Pentecost, about the Trinity? Why do we do this? We will come back to that question at the end. We'll leave that. Uh, What we're going to do first is look at our second lesson, which is the appointed epistle reading, Revelation 4. So if you would like to turn to Revelation 4, that is what we'll be considering together. First, we will uh, consider together this passage, move through it together. Then at the end, we will reflect on what does this teach us about God as Trinity? And then we'll try and attempt to answer that question. Why are we doing this? Why do we have a Trinity Sunday? Revelation chapter four, the book of Revelation. It is Revelation, by the way, not Revelations. Um, Revelation is a book, the final book of the New Testament. And in it, the Lord Jesus reveals to his servant, the apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, uh, visions. Okay, so the book actually begins with uh, John being in exile on the island of Patmos. And there, the Lord Jesus appears to him in a vision. And, um, and he gives him messages for the churches that they need to hear in preparation for events that are soon to come. And then the rest of the book is taken up with John being given these miraculous visions of heaven, 
and of coming judgments that are going to occur. In chapter 4, verse 1, John has just finished hearing the messages that are supposed to be sent to the seven churches. And now in verse 1 of chapter 4, the Apostle John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So John looks up, looks into heaven, and he sees an open door. Heaven is open. The doors of heaven are being flung open, and he hears a voice beckoning him, come in. This voice, John says, is, is like the first voice, or it is the first voice he heard like a trumpet in chapter 1, which is, we learn, Jesus Christ himself. The Lord Jesus is ascended, and he says, come up here, John. You're in the spirit, Okay. You're going to see visions. Come up here into heaven. I'm going to show you what must take place after this. What must take place after this? Have you ever heard the claim that Christians are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good? That Christians, they just kind of have their head in the clouds, right? Pie in the sky. What do these kinds of expressions communicate. They communicate an assumption, and that assumption is that heaven has nothing really at all to do with earth. You can believe in heaven if you want to. It's a nice otherworldly thought, but uh, it'll just kind of make you aloof because heaven and earth, if there is a heaven, some might say, they're totally disconnected. I mean, what do they have to do with one another? In many people's minds, heaven is just this boring place where it's bright and white and shiny and nothing really happens except people sitting on clouds playing harps. And whatever happens up there has little, if anything, to do with what actually happens here on earth, in history, in my day-to-day life. Revelation 4 shows us that that assumption is incorrect. Jesus is about to show John what is going to take place in human history. He's going to reveal to John future events. And where does he take him? Heaven. John will see visions of God's coming judgments and great acts in human history, but he will see it from the heavenly perspective. And from that perspective, we see that nothing happens purely by chance, but by the will of God Almighty. Heaven rules over human history. Human history is an outworking of heavenly determinations. God himself, Isaiah says, declares the end from the beginning. He works all things by the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1. And he guides the nations upon the earth. He directs all things to his appointed end. And God does this from heaven as his throne room. Supreme over all earthly activity and human history is the throne of God. From his throne, all history unfolds. In verse 2 through the first part of verse 6, we read a description of John's vision of the divine throne room. This is not 
the first and only description of the heavenly throne room in scripture. In fact, there are a few other significant visions that prophets and uh, and that people are given in scripture of the heavenly throne room. And it's important to be aware of that. When we're reading the New Testament, they're assuming we all know our Old Testament, right? We all know our Old Testament. This is why every, well, most Sundays when I have room, I try to keep this to one page, but I put the Bible reading plan in here, the 1662 lectionary. It's a daily Bible reading plan that just gets you in the whole of scripture. If you follow this, you'll go through the majority of the Old Testament in a year, the Psalms 12 times a year, And the New Testament, I believe, three times a year. So you get a lot of scripture this way. But when you read the New Testament, they're assuming you know the old. And especially Revelation. If you're going to understand Revelation with all its visions and symbolism, you need to know what's being drawn upon. And it is the Old Testament visions and symbolism. So a few uh, uh, prior heavenly throne room visions would include Exodus 24. Actually, so the Exodus we've been considering in our book study. When Israel comes to Sinai, there's a point where the covenant is ratified. The Lord declared his Ten Commandments, declared some initial laws. And then Moses and the elders of Israel go up the mountain partway. And it says they eat a meal. And they, Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11, uh, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. Okay, so they see the God of Israel. Under his feet, there's a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Another vision, Isaiah 6. You may be familiar with this one. Isaiah is, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So that's another significant one, a vision of God lifted up. Seraphim, angels with wings, crying out, holy, holy, holy. And then finally, Ezekiel chapter one. This is not finally. There are others we could go to, but Ezekiel chapter one is another uh, uh, important vision there. um, The prophet Ezekiel is in exile with the people of Israel. He's by the Chibar Canal and he's given a vision. And he says, as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it, fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. He goes on to describe these four living creatures that he saw. Um, Each had a human face, a face of a lion, face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. And these are called the the cherubim. They they are kind of like the throne chariot of God, the four wheels of the chariot, as it were, Mm -hmm. transporting the portable throne of God throughout the earth because above these four living creatures... There was, Ezekiel says in verse 26 of of chapter 1, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was the likeness of a human appearance. And he describes there was a rainbow in the cloud around the throne, and this was the appearance of the glory of the Lord. So what we read here in Revelation 
4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, is in keeping with the way the divine throne room has been described so far. John sees a vision of a throne in heaven with one seated on it. This is remarkable because in himself, God is invisible. Did you know that? You know the hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Or the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy, to the only God, immortal, invisible. Okay, why would God be invisible? Because God is a spirit. Without body, parts, or passions, as Article 1 of the 39 Articles says, he is an infinite and eternal spirit, and thus he is omnipresent. All of God is present everywhere, as David so beautifully attests in Psalm 139. So what is this when he sees uh, a throne with one seated on it? Well, the fact is God, though invisible and omnipresent, is perfectly capable of making his presence known through a visible and outward symbol of his presence. Theologians call this a theophany, literally a visible manifestation of God. So John sees the throne in heaven. He sees one sitting on the throne. But that's not all he sees. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Who are these elders? Some understand them to be uh, human beings or symbolic of human beings, human rulers. Others understand it to be angelic beings, angelic rulers. Either way, this is either symbolizing uh, human rulers or angelic rulers. It's, a, it's created rulers, right? These are creatures, not God. And either way, notice the, these thrones are not central. There's only one throne in the center. These are around it. In verse 5, John forgets about these lesser thrones and refers to the central one as the throne. From it alone comes forth flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before it alone burn the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We'll come back to that later. And before it alone is a sea of glass like crystal. All other created thrones are shadows and reflections of this one. All other thrones are subservient to this one. This, thro this throne rules and reigns over all others. The authority of this throne supersedes that of all other created rulership. John continues his description of the throne room in the second part of verse 6. Here he describes the, the attendance of the divine throne. He writes that around the throne... And on each side of the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like an ox, or sorry, like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
Angelic beings in paintings are often these very cute little chubby babies, aren't they? That's not the picture that we have here. Living creatures, full of eyes, all around, with wings, six wings. One has the face of a lion, the other an ox, the other the face of a man, the other an eagle in flight. What are these great creatures doing before the throne? They're praising God. Day and night, they never cease doing so. Their praise closely echoes the praise of the angels that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. They say, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. These creatures say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Notice first, they praise God because he is holy. To be holy is to be set apart. God's holiness is his utter uniqueness, his being set apart from all other created things. He is the eternal one while all else is temporary. He is the infinite one. All else is finite. He is the almighty Lord God. And so he is holy. They praise God because he is holy. They praise God because he is the Lord of hosts, the almighty. He is a mighty warrior, Exalted in strength, with hosts of heaven at his command. There is no limit to his strength, no end to his power. And third, they praise God because of his eternality. He was, and he is, and he is to come. Go back as far as you like. God is there. Go forward as far as you like. He is there. He is infinite and eternal. He is above time because he created time. In God, there is no before or after. He doesn't experience events successively, moment by moment, but rather all things are present to him. Now, if you find it difficult to grasp some of these attributes of God, praise God. Right? That's what makes him holy, set apart, different. A God you can comprehend is no God at all. Uh, St. Augustine has a saying, if you comprehend, it is not God you are comprehending. We can know God, but we can never fully understand God. He is the infinite, eternal, almighty creator And all we can do as his creatures is stand in awe and wonder and join in this angelic praise. By now, it's apparent that John has entered into the heavenly throne room and he's found himself, in fact, in a temple. He's in a worship service environment. The heavenly creatures have just said the sanctus together. Holy, holy, holy. That's something we say uh, or sing in our communion liturgy. Praising God for his holiness. And now John tells us, verses 9 through 11, that when the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power 
For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. There is a call and response dynamic to this worship of heaven. When the four living creatures give praise, then the 24 elders fall and worship. The 24 elders praise God for his work of creation. God is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power because he created all things. And by his will, they existed and were created. We can't really grasp our minds on this, but this created world in which we live, you and I as creatures, we are not necessary. The Bible testifies that the world, the universe, did not always exist, right? Even kind of modern scientific theories are acknowledging this and to talk of things like the Big Bang, right? You think, well, well where did that come from? <laughs> um, the world was not necessary. God did not need it. By his will, it was created. And it exists. And you and I exist by the will of God. So we praise him. You created all things. You didn't have to. You did. By your will, you created all things. So that's what the 24 elders say. But notice also what they do. They come down off their thrones. Right? 24 thrones around the throne. And they're all off it. They are falling down before him who is seated on the throne. And worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns. Before him. A few weeks ago, we had the uh, privilege, many of us, of, of being able to actually see televised in high definition the coronation of a king. The coronation of King Charles. Some of you may have watched that. If you haven't, I'd, I'd recommend you actually check that out because, as a service, it's actually full of like scripture and like great truth. And Yes, I heard someone say Anglican, right? Yes, it is Anglican as well, yes. A lot of it will seem familiar. So uh, it, it's a great service, uh, very meaningful. Um, would that everyone who, who, who took part in it or said it, like took it seriously, like what was being said was really good. But we saw this service. Imagine though, imagine King Charles in the midst of the coronation ceremony. After having been bedecked with royal robe, scepter, orb, given the crown upon his head. Imagine him rising from the throne, throwing them all off before the throne and falling down. That sounds a little far-fetched or absurd to you. Listen to what his great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, once said. One of her chaplains had been preaching on the second coming and afterwards the queen said to him, Oh, how I wish that the Lord would come in my lifetime. Why, asked the chaplain, does your majesty feel this? Why does your majesty feel this very earnest desire? The queen replied with quivering lips, her whole countenance lighted up by deep emotion. I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. In conclusion, I want to ask you, Two questions. We're returning to the two matters we referenced before. So first, what can we learn about the Trinity from Revelation 4? Okay, so Revelation 4, how do we see the Trinity here? Well, one of the um, 
focuses of Revelation 4 is that God is the creator. That is what he's praised for. We just read in Genesis 1 of how God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? The spirit of God hovers over the waters and God says, let there be light. God creates. God creates by his word and spirit. Already in Genesis chapter 1, within the first few verses, we see this hint at the very least of what will become clearer as scripture moves on. The triune nature of God. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, the Word, and the Spirit. We might see a hint of this even in the, the threefold sanctus. The holy, holy, holy. Right? A threefold repetition for a threefold God. But we really see it quite clearly in Revelation 4 when we read it in context. Okay, so there's hints of it within, but if we read it in context, we see the Trinity front and center. Who is seated on the throne? The Lord God Almighty, right? The Lord God Almighty, okay? What is before the throne? The seven spirits of God. Now, that designation is referring to the Holy Spirit who was active in the creation of the world in seven days and who also gives his sevenfold gifts of grace upon Christ and his people, as Isaiah 11 verse 2 describes. So here we have God on the throne, the Spirit of God before the throne. If we were to keep reading in Revelation, we would shortly come to another character in chapter 5. Some of you may remember. The Lamb standing as though it had been slain. This lamb is worthy to take the scroll and open its seven seals, and therefore he is praised and worshipped by all creation. They say, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This lamb receives worship as well as the one seated on the throne. This lamb is divine. This lamb is also the one God. So the one seated on the throne, the seven spirits before the throne, and the lamb. This is a clear depiction within John's vision of the truth of the Trinity. The one God subsisting as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, let's return to a moment to the very first question we asked. Why do we have a Trinity Sunday? Trinity Sunday takes a step back and it says, who is this God who has so acted to save us? When we consider the great acts of salvation accomplished in Christ and his incarnation, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, pouring out of the Holy Spirit, his return. When we look at these great acts of salvation in Christ, there we see clearly reviewed, clearly revealed the triune nature of God. That the one God subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father sent his Son into the world. The Son accomplished our salvation, and then the Son sends his Spirit into our hearts. Our salvation is triune. This is not a mere theory. This is who God is. The Trinity is not just some abstract idea 
out there. Rather, you, believer, have been caught up in the Trinity. You've been caught up in the life and fellowship of the Trinity because of Jesus. You've been brought in by the Spirit to commune with the triune God. Trinity Sunday also reminds us that our salvation is not merely about being delivered from something. It does not consist merely in being given certain material or even certain spiritual benefits, forgiveness of sin, strength against temptation, bodily resurrection. All of those things are great and precious gifts for which we give thanks. But they are all, in fact, means to an end. And that end is to know and enjoy God. At the heart of the gospel is this great truth. You get God. You get to know, love, and serve, and enjoy God. The gospel gives us many great gifts, but the greatest gift that we are given, the gift for the sake of which every other gift is given, is to be brought back to God and restored fellowship. Listen to what the apostle Peter says. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Trinity Sunday reminds us of this. Put right at the end of the major feast days of our church year, it reminds us that we have been saved from our sins by Christ and the Spirit so that we can be brought into fellowship and communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is good news. This is the gospel. Or as John himself puts it, at the end of Revelation, In Revelation 22, describing the new Jerusalem. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we praise you that you have revealed yourself to us in the gospel. God, we praise that you have revealed yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that we have been forgiven and redeemed by the blood of Christ. We thank you that the Spirit has been sent into our hearts to unite us to Christ, to give us faith, repentance, and to bear his fruit in our lives. We thank you that you have brought us into communion and fellowship with you. We pray that we would rejoice and give thanks for the gift that is you. We pray. Amen.